Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Zach Osterman joining us from the Indianapolis Star. And before we get to talking about Indiana athletics, the reason that we would have Zach on, first we have to get his entire breakdown of the Atlanta Falcons. Because Zach is, for those of you listening, and those of you that are saying, you know, I've never met a Falcons fan. Zach, you're a Falcons fan, right? Unfortunately. Now, they're not terrible, right? Well, I mean, they are. If if you just consider the historical context and the degree to which nothing ever changes, I think it is. But as we know in the NFL, Zach, we never talk about historical context. It's always about the current season, right? And currently in this season, they are the, – I always say the NFL right now, you've got like four really good teams, four teams that are absolutely terrible, and then a vat of mediocrity, right? And they're in that vat yeah. of mediocrity. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing you can hope at this point is that they – keeps thinking further and further away from it so the draft is at least worthwhile. I think it's been a an otherwise pretty uh pretty pointless season, unfortunately. That was that was on I think it's fair to say that's on Falcons fans for expecting expecting more from a franchise that basically never uh delivers it. So you're saying you wouldn't have spent forty five cents to go to that game on Sunday? Uh no. <laughs> no, I'm confident I wouldn't have. Have we seen enough of Desmond Ritter to know that he is in fact not the long term guy, or are they still gonna give him looks? I mean it, it's hard to imagine and uh, you know, I don't know what Arthur Arthur Smith is thinking. It's hard to imagine taking away a guy's starting job twice in one season, particularly for, you know, pretty glaring turnover issues and still thinking he's kind of the you know, the future, if you understand what I'm saying. And I actually, you know, I mean, this was just my, I'm not going to profess to be some draft nick, but I, I liked the pick when they took him. I thought he was, the, you know, kind of the, maybe the, I forget what that whole class looked like at quarterback, but it wasn't very deep. I thought he was kind of the, the best the Falcons could Yeah, that's, do. I do remember that. Because I remember, you know, he was, there was some discussion or link about the Colts, right? Yeah, I think so. And... The Falcons didn't take him to the third round, but that still felt like enough of a sort of statement of intent to sort of say this is a guy that we think is going to help us really long term. And I think it's fair to say that's not really happened. And you know, now it, it, they do feel a little bit like a team that's probably too good defensively to think far enough down to get out of quarterback purgatory. But you know, they had Matt Ryan for 15 years or whatever it was, and we know how that ended. And that wasn't Ryan's fault at all. So I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, uh, a good quarterback is going to change the franchise's fortunes very much. Also, in your defense, Arthur Smith doesn't even know what Arthur Smith's doing, so it's okay. It's not. Don't, don't, yeah, don't try to feels, get down that wormhole. Increasingly, it feels that way, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, Zach, we'll stick with the gridiron theme and the theme of can a team that has gone in one direction for a long time turn it around? Talking about Indiana, um, you know, we've had a little bit of time now to get to know, maybe not personally, but certainly the confidence of Kurt Signetti. And, you know, coming in and immediately kind of putting his stamp on things. For those of us that don't, you know, are, are not looking at it hour by hour, where do things stand for Indiana just in terms of kind of the roster flip for them and the players that they may have coming in and those in particular that were key that they managed to, to 
hold on to? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, this is obviously always kind of a fluid thing in, um, in modern college football. You've got the portal, you know, obviously transfer process has never been easier, all that kind of stuff. I think, um, I think from, you know, from Indiana's perspective, there was a point where I think they dipped under 60 scholarship players, maybe even under 55, um, just in terms of, you know, what was projected going forward. And that's not maybe super unsurprising, again, when you consider the current climate and just the, the turnover you're going to see after a coaching change. But they're back up, I think, in the low 70s now, which is good. I think they've really sort of retooled or restocked some key positions, particularly on offense. I think, you know, I think they, they've, I mean, they've taken, obviously they got Donald McCulley back, which was a, a really big keep. Uh, I think at one point it seemed very much like he was two feet out the door. They've also taken a flurry, especially just in the last like 24 hours, of receiver transfers. Um, in terms of just guys that were productive at places like Texas Tech, Ohio, Wake Forest, you know, career numbers that you would feel good about maybe as a, a number two or a number three receiver. They took Curtis Rourke, the Ohio transfer, who was very good for about two and a half, three seasons at Ohio. I, he's only got one year left, so you would imagine he's probably your, your bridge quarterback, so to speak, to whatever comes next. So offensively, I think they've done a lot in terms of restocking the skill positions, bringing back Carter Smith at left tackle, adding a couple more pieces along the line, probably still a little bit more to do. And in terms of total numbers, the roster is getting back toward full. It's, you know, it's important for programs like Indiana in this, in, in this sense or this, this scenario that there's no more uh, – the counter limit is gone. You can bring in as many new guys as you need to now. I do think there's still some needs defensively as we are – Literally, as we're speaking, I saw a tweet pop up. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Michael Kamara um, coming over from James Madison. He had 17 and a half tackles for loss last season. JMU was pretty much the most disruptive defense in the Sun Belt last season, and Kamara was a part of that. He's a defensive lineman. I think they could stand to add a little bit more there. They could really stand to shore up a linebacker group that, that was kind of hit by expected uh, attrition as much as anything else. So defense is probably where – you're going to see a lot more focus in, in the coming days and weeks, um, particularly, I think, in the portal. I think that, that you know, there will be some high school guys that join in at some point, maybe in January, early February. But, of course, most high school players sign in December now. So I think you'll see one or two um, high-profile additions between now and tomorrow. And then I would imagine a lot's going to be focused on the lines and defensive depth going forward. Zach Osterman covers all things IU Athletics. From the Indy Star is our guest. Zach, where is the line, and maybe it's too early to find that line, but where is the line between hyperbole of IU football has completely been changed now before they've played a game with Kurt Signetti at the helm versus, no, he's really doing things to revitalize this program and get it on the right track. Where is that line in terms of overreaction to putting on non-rose-colored glasses and realizing, no, there are some good changes that are happening already in his short tenure? That's a good question. I think, I mean, it is undeniable that he has changed the mood, you know, probably more than I would have expected maybe any coaching hire to change the mood around, certainly any reasonable coaching hire, obviously, to change the mood around this program after everything had kind of slumped for about three seasons. Um, there's, you know, obviously there's the stuff like getting the microphone at the basketball game and stuff like that. But I think what's, what's much more tangible is, you know, it seems like he's been pretty bullish about taking the NIL number that he was handed out for a, a walk. And obviously that's going to help you 
with some impact transfers. That's also going to help you keep a Carter Smith or keep a Donovan McCulley and, and those sorts of um, those sorts of guys you're going to want to retain. Um, and I do, I mean, listen, it's, it's so hard with the portal in particular because so many classes now are a blend of, you know, transfers and how do you sort of rate and rank transfers. And, and it's, it's harder too with transfers because, you know, everybody needs something a little bit different out of a guy when, you know, they're recruiting them out of the portal, whereas a lot of high school players are still going to be, you know, largely unmolded clay skills and attributes and trying to figure out where their ceiling is and how to approach it. But, you know, I, I do think he's had a, a fair bit of success, if nothing else, just adding guys with proven production um, at places that were clear needs. So I think the roster piece of it is going well, though I do think it's incomplete. Um, you know, I, I think if I'm – I guess the best way I can answer that is to compare it to, you know, coaching changes I've been around in the past. I arrived at Indiana as a freshman, Terry Hepner's first season. It does remind me a fair bit of that, the energy around it, the optimism – you know, Hepner uh, was was pretty sort of bullish and, and energetic, and obviously uh, through you know sad and unforeseen circumstances, kind of didn't get to see that through. But you know, I think the Kevin Wilson's, you know, the, the coaching change to Kevin Wilson, I think people were excited, but I don't remember an energy level like this. And then obviously the Wilson to Allen thing was kind of a different sort of a different sort of change. So you didn't really see the same kind of energy, but. Um, I don't. I, I will say this, and I, I think this is probably the fairest way I can answer the question. I don't think I've, I've seen IU football fans this excited at this time of year without a bowl game on the horizon. And you know, to, to, when you consider that, obviously, Signetti's got a history of success. I'm not trying to put the cart before the horse, but when you consider Indiana's got eight home games next season, um, you know, this kind of momentum is healthy to take into the new year. I think a lot of it, Zach. When you look at Terry Hepner, and I agree with you on the Hepner narrative, right? But unlike Kevin Wilson, unlike Tom Allen, unlike, for the most part, Bill Lynch, you know, Terry Hepner and the thing those two guys have in common, Signetti and Hepner, is that they came to Indiana after having built and been the CEO of a stepping stone program to come to Indiana, which gave you A, the perception that this is where they really wanted to be, which is unusual for a guy with head coaching experience, and B, they had body of work where you felt more comfortable giving them the keys because they had already driven a previous car, whereas those other guys all at some point had been a co-pilot but never had taken the wheel entirely on their own. And so it just creates a different vibe, if you will. Um, So, I mean, I agree with you on, on that, and I loved Hepner, obviously, like everybody, but... I'm curious of this, Zach Osterman, Indianapolis Star. The NIL, I mean, I, I have a general idea here, but for the, for our listeners, when we hear about NIL money, Indiana's going to, you know, they got the money to, to get this receiver or this point guard or whatever it may be. Indiana's name, image, likeness funding that they have to be able to be creative, to get players to come there, the money is appropriated where? and it is distributed in terms of its percentages towards sport, how? So this is um, a lot of it, not all of it. The, the, the sort of, I guess, the, the, the foundation of it is going to be the two partner collectives, Hoosiers for Good and Hoosiers Connect, which are kind of the charity side and the business side. They're, they're under the same umbrella, run by the same people. That's, that is the collective that um, 
Indiana basically more or less registered with the NBA or the NBA, forgive me. It's been a long few days. The NCAA and said, you know, this is our official collective. This is the one that the, you know, the NCAA says, okay, you can work hand in hand with them. You can fundraise for them. You can promote them. You know, when you see Indiana at basketball games, throw the QR code up on the big screen that says, you know, support Hoosier athletes through Hoosiers for good or Hoosiers connect today. That's the official collective that Indiana's partnered with. And unless something has changed each school, each school basically just gets one. Then there's, you know, some other smaller efforts around that. Hoosier hysterics have one. And then it's also worth saying athletes can still set up the one-to-one deals. I think we've gotten to a place where we talk so much about collectives that we forget that, you know, Trace Jackson Davis and Race Thompson had partnerships with, was it, was it, First Merchants Bank or Merchants Bank of Indiana. Right. It was one of the banks, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I get I get those two confused specifically. Forgive me. Somebody's listening and they're furious that the advertising didn't get through to me. And please understand, it's just because I have two small children who bleed my brain dry every day. Um, that stuff is going to be independent and it's going to be sort of athlete-specific. So there's it, it kind of spreads from a lot of different places. When you talk about, you know, sort of it going to different sports and things, that's going to be something that the collectives, you know, kind of are primarily marshalling. And this has actually been some schools have had some pretty controversial sort of stretches with these. Penn State had one around the time uh, the, the the discussion of Micah Shrewsbury leaving for Notre Dame, sort of the suggestion that football was getting too much of the oxygen and there wasn't enough to go around to make other programs sort of, you know, give other programs the, the resources necessary to kind of get involved with NIL. Um, you know, this is all subjective. I, I have not talked to, you know, 50 power five schools and all their coaches and all their programs. My impression is that actually the Hoosiers connect and Hoosiers for good folks do a pretty good job of spreading around and, and getting a lot of different programs involved. I think just about every program at Indiana has had, you know, athletes on NIL deals through, through that collective specifically, not counting anything they might've picked up on their own. Obviously, it being just kind of a marketplace that everybody's still figuring out, but we can all imagine that, you know, basketball is going to get a little more resource. Football is going to get more resource. And this is the, this is kind of a new version of the debate we've had for, you know, 40 years, which is, you know, how much money do you allot for the sports that don't make money? How much money do you put into the sports that do make money that therefore pay for the rest of the sports that don't make money? And that's always kind of a balancing act, but, um, Again, it is something where you know you can you can work closely. You can't the, the coach still can't walk into the living room and say you know here's you know sign this piece of paper and you get X dollars or whatever. But what they can do is they can walk in with a very sort of liberal idea of these are the opportunities that are available to you. These are the sorts of you know these are the sorts of NIL opportunities our athletes have had in the past. And schools have even you know, been, I think, more bullish SEC schools in particular, though I was able to confirm Indiana's number during the coaching search for football. Schools have become more bullish about kind of sharing overall numbers in terms of saying, you know, this is kind of the the overall sort of pot that we're drawing from. For, again, the SEC schools have done this the most, I think. And what was, the, what was the Indiana number? At the time that uh, – and this was before Segetti was hired. It was in excess of $3 million. Now, there have obviously been a couple of big fundraising pushes around Segetti's hiring – and all the energy we've been talking about and the momentum and the excitement, I wouldn't be surprised if that number's higher now. Um, but it was it was a little over $3 million was kind of the baseline number that Indiana was able to take into the coaching search and say, this is the 
the sort of resource level we're talking about you being able to have um, as you go about building your roster year over year. And that's really what it is anymore. It's, you know, you can project some guys over three or four years, but you really are just kind of reassessing your roster every year now because guys will go in the portal and you have to, you know, you have to re-recruit guys and all those different kinds of things. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher now. And my, this is, this is just something I've sort of gleaned over, I don't know, a couple, really two years covering NIL now. Um, the marketplace is still settling. Everyone's still figuring out exactly kind of where it works. The number that I have come to most often for a competitive power five program that is somewhere south of the Alabamas, the Georgias, the Ohio States is like three to four, maybe three to five million dollars. So I think Indiana is at least kind of entering that that territory based on the numbers. I understand as with anything else, you know, as long as NIL is the thing that kind of rules all this and we may get to revenue sharing eventually in the not very distant future, but for the moment it is NIL. As with anything else, you can never just sort of sit there and say, okay, we're done. You know, we've we, we've we've done enough. This will be enough forever. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we see these numbers kind of continue to rise in the coming years. But Indiana does seem to have gotten to a place where it's it's very competitive in terms of what it puts into football. Zach, what did Indiana do against Kansas that you liked? I know that they lost. Uh, Kansas is no slouch. They led most of the game. You could certainly have some issue with the way they closed and maybe even the rotation thereof. Uh, what did they do that you liked? I think there were a couple things. First of all, I can. It continues to feel like McKenzie and Baca was figuring out where to get his points, where to find his game. You know, there was a lot of this discussion when he was signed that Indiana was going to give him a chance to play the three, and people wondered if he was more of a four. At Indiana, he's got to be a three because they've got the two bigs down low that that are, you know, frankly, right now they're two best players and complement each other so well. And I think, among other things, and he's probably still got to improve defensively and, and that sort of thing, but it seemed like Mbako was struggling to kind of figure out where his offense was in particular, you know, how to leverage all of his traits and his strengths. And of course his size at six foot eight offensively, when maybe he wasn't, you know, he was, he was having to drift around the floor a little bit more. It's five straight games. Now he's in double figures that, you know, until he got into foul trouble, I thought he looked assertive. He obviously hit a couple big threes. Um, he looked particularly dangerous in transition, which I think is something that, you know, for a team that we can have the whole three point discussion off to one side, this is a team that is going to be better the more it runs and the more it scores in transition because it's not as good in the half court. The, the more dangerous he looks in transition, the better Indiana is. And the other thing I like to obviously you can talk about Trey Galloway, the 28 points. He was outstanding. But it was also kind of the way Indiana adjusted to get him his points. Indiana was able to recognize in real time, whether it was Mike Woodson calling it out, whether it was an assistant in timeouts, whether it was just you know the players on the floor. Indiana was fairly quick to realize what Kansas was doing in defending its bigs and how Indiana could go to some of its its ball screen actions. And in particular, it really loves this little sort of like baseline curl action with Trey Galloway because he's so good kind of eight feet and then he can finish well, but he's also got that little teardrop floater and he can throw the alley-oop. It went to that and just kind of kept exploiting Kansas's inability to, to, to read and react to those, those actions. And obviously that's what winds up getting him all those points. So I think, listen, I, I'm, I'm still, I, I don't know why I, say, I want to say skeptical. Um, I need to see Indiana repeat these performances against you know, Big Ten opposition because now they have challenged themselves commendably, uh, commendably in the non-conference, but they don't come out of the non-conference with anything really to show for it. 
but I do think you're allowed to be encouraged if you're an Indiana fan by what you saw Saturday. Zach Osterman covers all things IU athletics for the Indy Star, joins us. Zach, when it comes to Xavier Johnson, I know that on Inside IU Basketball with Don Fisher last night, Coach Woodson said that it, he's, he's out, he's going to be out tonight, and they want to get him back soon, but they don't know exactly when he's going to be back. I realize the first answer is probably going to be, I don't know, so I'll ask that with a follow-up to it. Can we expect Xavier Johnson back by the Purdue game, which would be January 16th? And if the answer is, I don't know, or something else, who who needs to step up the most while he's still gone? Because you're acti- asking a lot of Gabe Cups, and he's he's managed the expectations at times being the starter alongside Trey Galloway. But, but where do you need more step-up ability, if you will, from the guard play if Xavier Johnson is going to miss further time than just the four games with that lower body injury? Yeah, I think that the first thing I would say is, even if Xavier Johnson was close to return, I don't think Indiana would would really want to risk bringing him back for these sure, three games. Sure. I think I think Indiana. We we saw this with Trace Jackson Davis last winter. I think Indiana would look at it and say, you know, we should be able to beat. We should be able to win these games. Even you know, Morehead State's not a pushover, um, but we should still be able to win these games without Xavier Johnson. So even if he's approaching health, let's just give him the extra time. We'll get him ready for Big Ten play. I would say if he's not back by Purdue, if he's not back by mid-January, then I think you do start to ask some more serious questions that I'm sure Indiana won't answer, and that's just kind of the, the push and pull of people like me in the media who sort of you know want to get that stuff for our readers and people like them who I don't necessarily always agree with it, but I at least understand why that kind of information gets held close to the vest, injury information. If he's not back by, like, you know, mid-late January, then I think, especially given how long the broken foot kind of went on, and I don't think this has to do with the foot from last year, but you just kind of say, hey, is this another one of those where it's just going to keep going, and and week by week it seems like he's getting closer and he's never really able to come back. I think that's when you start to get that concern. With him gone, and I would say this anyway, but I think it's even more pronounced after Kansas, um, I think you've got to look at Trey Galloway and say, hey, listen, most teams aren't Kansas and we've been able to do some of these things that get you looks and get you points in the past. You think about, you know, I, I think about his ability to get some key buckets. Obviously, Jalen Huchifino took the headlines that night, but his ability to get some key buckets and similar actions against Purdue at Purdue, the, the Northwestern game a couple of years ago where he um, where he, he scored, what was it, like 17 points, and Indiana had all those players suspended. I think you look at Trey Galloway and you say, hey, listen, you, you seem to kind of be looking for your offensive game a little bit over the first month or so of the season. The shot was that was there, the three-point shot last year, hasn't really translated this year. Seemed like he had maybe some issues a little bit around the rim. Obviously, probably figuring out how to play with a brand-new front court, too, and he's a senior, he's a captain. You know, there's, there's a lot more on Trey Galloway's shoulders and a lot more he's had to, just like any of his teammates, sort of learn through – a roster that got, you know, flipped over 50% of it got turned over last season, last off season. But I think you you would be within your right. I think if you're Mike Woodson to look at Galloway now and say, Hey, listen, you know, you did that against Kansas. You did that against Bill self and Hunter Dickinson and, you know, whoever else, El Marco Jackson, Dewan Harris, whoever, whoever was trying to cover you that couldn't, we don't need 28 points from you every night, but this needs to be a, a jumping off point for you. You know, you were so good kind of getting to the rim, finishing well, hit a couple threes. This needs to be kind of a, a moment for you. A little bit like McKenzie and Baco, where I think he kind of had a game like that, maybe against Harvard, and really kind of kicked on from there. Trey Galloway needs this Kansas game to maybe be one where he says, okay, I can I can 
take my game back up a level offensively, at least until Xavier Johnson's back, and maybe give my team a chance, if Johnson isn't on the floor by the new year, to, to compete for some valuable Big Ten wins early in January. Zach, when you've um, you still have family in the Atlanta area, correct? I do, yes. So, so when you're going driving back and forth and maybe taking your kids there to visit family or whatnot, and I don't think I've asked you this before, if I have, humor me, have you ever stopped and taken them to Rock City or Ruby Falls? I mean, I've been. I've never taken. We've, are, we've never. Are they, are they tourist traps? Do they suck, or are they worth going to? I always enjoy Rock City, Ruby Falls. It's been a long time since I've been. Um, I always enjoyed Rock City. I've also heard just anecdotally. My kids are little, so like, once we're within sight of the finish line and we get on seventy-five, like, <laughs> I have no interest get, in getting off in Chattanooga. You get to Chattanooga, like, and you got like two hours left. You're like, here we go, yeah. right? This, well, and like, once you something changes. With the drivers, once you hit the state line in Georgia, suddenly everybody's doing 88, and it's great. It's fantastic. You can just tuck yourself over in that middle lane on 75 South, do 85. You're not. Yeah, I mean they're all over. they're all rednecks and Dodge Chargers. I should hope, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's. Hey, listen. You know those are my people. I'm, I'll never speak <laughs> ill of them, and I get to drive faster. But no, it's. We used to go to Chattanooga a lot when I was a kid, and I've actually heard that just as a town, it's been really revitalized in the last like 10, 12 I love years. It. I love Chattanooga. And so, uh, obviously, Atlanta has the Superior Aquarium now. No, no questions, please. But uh, Rock City is a ton of fun. At least it was when I was a kid. And I'm guessing if I is it my just a, is Rock now, City just a bunch be, of rocks? Do you just go there and it's a bunch of rocks? What is it? Well, so there's um, there are kind of there's like a path carved out through a whole bunch of different um, kind of rock formations up in the mountains there because obviously that's all that's all part of the Appalachians, kind of the, the southern end of them. There's a in particular, there is a um, this this one big sort of I don't know what you call it like like cliff I guess that's been sort of flattened out a little bit, and on a clear day you're supposed to be able to see Tennessee, Virginia, oh, right. Kentucky, that's seven states, one of the right? Carolinas and Georgia, yeah. yeah they like only, they only have a billboard every five yards telling you that it's like Brian Urlacher's well, hair deal on 294. And it's an intri- if I'm remembering the story rightly, and you'd have to double check me on this, but if I'm remembering the story. Rock City was actually opened during the Depression, and the guy who opened it kind of didn't really know how to get people to come see it, and obviously people didn't have money and all these different things. So when you see the barns that they see Rock City, he just went to, you know, almost door-to-door to farmers and said, will you paint this on top of your barn? Right. I'll pay I've you. heard that, yeah. And so that's, that's kind of the origin a phenomenon, of right? So, yeah, and it, listen, my five-year-old would love it because there's a point where you can, like, pan for in finger quotes gold and fine precious gems and all that kind of stuff so he'd absolutely love it i i like i said it feels like it's only like a one or two hour detour i don't think it's something that's going to eat up your whole day well all i know is this you threw some shade there at the chattanooga aquarium and if you go to chattanooga which is a cool city they're very proud of their aquarium so that seems a little stuffy Uh, you know it's fine it's a great aquarium and it's probably cheaper than the georgia aquarium but if you've been to the georgia aquarium as somebody who grew up going on field trips to the Chattanooga Aquarium, if you've been to the Georgia Aquarium, it's it has it has taken the aquarium game up a level. Now it's taken the aquarium it has taken the aquarium price up a level too. But you know that, that's, that's actually it. just simply known as the sea level, just for what it's worth. But anyway. <laughs> hey Zach, Merry Christmas, man! And um, I know that you know the Falcons Colts will be interesting. I'm not going to say good luck to your Falcons, but 
certainly yeah, you, enjoy if watching the Falcons the game. had If the Falcons didn't have bad luck, they'd have no luck at all. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> all right. I, I appreciate it, man. Merry Christmas to you. You too. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, we'll Zach Osterman of the Indianapolis Star. Chattanooga's cool, man. I'm telling you. Pacers last night were in a giving mood at the Fieldhouse, giving up over 150 to the Clippers. Fieldhouse Files is where you can read the work of Scott Agnes. Also hear him on this program and read him a variety of different places. He joins us now on the show. Uh, Scott, first off, I, I'm assuming you were not listening to the program, so we've I, I've become Santa Jake where you can make your sports request and your your wish list for Christmas for the team of your choice. Now, if you were going to do that, you would pick what team and what would be the thing you would ask Santa Jake for that was that would be able to put your team over the top. Can I negotiate and have a general thing in terms of just health for star players in this city? Because it seems like when things well, start Scott, to get good, you may. But here's the thing: you have to re- okay. you have to begin it with my request, Santa Jake, yeah, and then you have to stroke his request. ego a little bit. Yeah. So so go ahead. We'll start over again. That's okay. First time's always toughest. Go ahead, guys. Santa Jake, my yes. request here for Santa Jake on our first time meeting is that star players in the city of Indianapolis have good health because every time something starts to be going in their way. Something negatively happens from Peyton to Danny Granger to Paul George, Andrew Luck, the list goes down. I want Indiana sports fans to enjoy their players. Okay, fair. Now, I will say Peyton Manning was quite the Iron Man. San- Here's the thing, little Scotty. Santa Jake knows that you can't please all little boys and girls. And, and and for years, for many, many years, for like, as a matter of fact, I think it was for like 12 in a row, Santa Jake did what he could to keep little Peyton healthy and it worked and then one thing happens and suddenly all of a sudden Santa Jake was on everybody's naughty list and that was tough that was a hard thing for Santa Jake to learn but we'll, but I'll do what I can how's that I appreciate it <laughs> if you want to get more basic and probably what you thought I was getting at Santa Jake it'd be for the Pacers to play some semblance of defense man the rest Scott, of the it's it, look I, I almost feel like Rick Carlisle because of the fact that, you know, yesterday after the game, he was pretty candid about, look, if we got to change lineups, we'll do that. Like, he, he he definitely sounded frustrated last night. He walked it back a little bit today by saying, I don't know that the answer for us is to slow things down because we have to run a, a, at a high pace offensively to, do, to be who we are. But it is obviously of concern. If you were – and I know last night you had no Nimhard, you had no Miles Turner. That does make a difference, Scott. But the biggest culprit is where? I mean, what is what is this, the, the leak that is causing this defensive breakdown night in and night out? The best player on almost every team, the most valuable position is what? Small forward, right? Six foot seven wing. That's the thing the Pacers have lacked for the last several years. And so that's the player on, mo- on basically every team they face that torments them, that goes for 40, that goes for a season high. Um, just because they don't have anyone that can stop him individually. That's why, like last night, a lot of people were like, you're making excuses. Because first of all, I started at their incredible trip that they're coming off of. Seven games in 12 days, so many travel issues and those sorts of things. The the reality is the first game back at home is always the worst. Now throw that out the door and consider last night you had Hall of Famers like Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, James Harden, like, the Pacers couldn't stop any of those guys individually on any given night if they had four days rest. So everything went against them last night. 
And they have, yes, they have Neesmith. They have a Bruce Brown, who I, I would say is a little bit of a dif- disappointment defensively, considering what you are paying him, the highest paid player on this team. But without Nemhard, without Turner, and a group that has not been able to come together defensively, it, it, last night was the most predictable outcome of the season for the Pacers. You know, the, the thing about just their defensive, Scott, you know, talking about like, a wing, a wing defender, a six-seven wing mm-hmm. defender, and I'm beating a dead horse here, but I was saying it. it. Give me your perspective on this. He has a player option at the end of the year. He had talked about when Tyrese Halliburton did a podcast with him that seeing some of Halliburton's big moments made him feel nostalgic. He's made a lot of money. Is there any chance Paul George entertains the thought of coming back here for the twilight of his career, or is there any chance that the Pacers even entertain that conversation with him? That's the ironic thing here is he is literally exactly what they need. I know. The trouble is, one, doesn't fit the timeline at 33. So, right, you're paying him for, what, years 34 to 38, which doesn't match at all where Tyrese is 10 years younger. The other thing is um, I haven't had a chance, you know, talked with him or anyone around him lately, but, like, Look, he's, he's, he's an L.A. guy through and through. He loves being home. He's settled in nicely. He's one of the faces of that Clippers team. They're moving into a brand-new arena. His parents are right there. I'm not sure there's anything that will get him out of L.A. Well, they're getting ready for a rebuild, though, aren't they, the Clippers? I mean, like, does he want to go through all that again? It all depends how drastic Steve Ballmer, the owner, goes with this. And I, I can't see it being going too far Jake here because of the new arena like you got to have players to sell the new arena the new tickets that new experience too like everybody will want to attend for one year but then it'll wear off so it's with Steve Ballmer being easily the richest owner in that league I don't think you'll see anything like a true rebuild like the Pacers kind of are even going through right now I just don't think he'll tolerate it because he can afford not to now that Steve Ballmer's the excitable fellow right he jumps around a lot and stuff like that yeah yeah, he's worth like ninety billion, like something unreal. That's why he's jumping around. All I'd the time. be jumping around too, right? I got news for you. Steve doesn't have to just get on the radio to play Santa. You know what I mean? I mean, he, you know, he can he can deliver his own goods. Um, all right, let's begin with Scott. Just from a health standpoint, the return of a few players that I think you know. Obviously, some of the guys that are out have been important. Um, number one, we'll begin with Miles Turner. The injury that kept him out last night stands where and. When what is his timetable? Yeah, I have not getting, gotten anything for certain on him. It's a, it's a, a title for a injury that I have not heard before, bilateral hamstring, which I think is going into your glute. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's a fall or what have you, but I do know the timeline of it suggests kind of he woke up sore. Maybe it was uh, something from a previous game that he felt yesterday afternoon when he was added to the injury report there and of note it was just his first missed game last season or, or of this season rather uh Andrew Nemhart I talked with late last week and he was feeling much improved he was grateful that you know his injury which looked awful down on the court there in Las Vegas was not as bad as he feared like an ACL and Achilles something like that um it is to his left knee he was hopeful there's a chance he could return this week that might push it a little bit but I think he's Short term, I think you could see him here in the next week or so. Uh, and Jalen Smith, to be determined, I watched him before each game out in Vegas, and you could see him do a lot of things uh, like himself, but it was the cut movements. It was when he made it sharp moves from left to right, 
laterally. The Pacers had one of their athletic trainers watching the whole workout. He couldn't quite complete it comfortably uh, without grimacing on his face, kind of it's in that ankle region where he has a heel contusion. So uh, I think he's getting closer, but not quite there yet, but no firm timeline on any of the guys. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. Scott, a lot of people, Pacers fans included, anxious whenever you have a player that's drafted as high as Jairus Walker was for when is he going to arrive consistently at the NBA level. And and it's been well documented, right? There's a bit of a log jam there. How do you find minutes for him? My question isn't when he arrives. My question is, how do you judge G League play for what the league is right now? I know the showcase is going on in Orlando. They're in a tight one with the Capital City Go-Go. And just focusing on today, 28 points for him, 10 of 18 from the field, 5 of 9 from beyond the arc. He's looked really efficient on the glass. How do you gauge G League play in today's NBA for when a rookie slash younger player might be ready for a bigger test at the next level? Yeah, and to to make note of how big this event is for those in the league, the Pacers have their full executive staff, all four of them down in Orlando. It's a great place heading into the trade deadline for executives to quietly discuss things because there's no fans. So it's, it's a pure basketball venue versus, you know, summer league like you've been at where it's more marketing and entertainment. It's more like the old Orlando summer league, right? In terms of the way this event's set up. Yeah. And that was phenomenal. So this is just in a convention center, eight courts, pure about basketball with media agents and, and team executives. So a lot of conversations that might be finalized, let's say, in a couple minutes, may start right here. But in terms of Jairus and how you gauge him, I think the best representation beyond the numbers, because you're going to get that when you're playing against less, lesser competition, I'm looking more so of how does he react? What is his confidence level? What is he, does he get into the flow of the offense? What defensive reads are, are he making? Because, yes, he should be one of the best offensive and defensive players on the court. Um, is he is – he, making his teammates around him better, those sorts of things, or is he simply being outplayed, which he isn't. But if he was, that would be a big red flag there. So, yes, he's going to score. Any of these guys should. If you remember, like Solomon Hill did, Joe Young did. Uh, Joe Young always joked, but he was being dead serious, actually. I'm way too good for the G League. Don't send me back there. I'm too good, (laughs) which is great because, yeah, he'd go there and drop 35, but then that shows the difference from – the G League to the NBA, where he couldn't even get in games. So you want to see Jairus produce. You want to see him make reads and do things very similarly to how Rick Carlisle and the coaching staff with the Pacers is working with him daily on. Scott, what um, I guess what needs to, to happen is probably the wrong way of asking it, but what have you seen from Ben Shepard that you like or don't like, and do you think that he gets more – involved within rotations so the thing i like about him is all those things i just outlined are exactly what you can count on him every single game for one he's a little bit older he's a little bit more mature four-year guy from belmont but when you talk to rick carlisle about ben what you get from him is just you know what you're going to get he's solid he's sound he's predictable he's an energy guy he's a sure thing in terms of what he's producing the trouble is they just have a plethora of guards in front of him however if you talk about Rick and, and not his threat, but his thought of, all right, maybe we need to try something different. Maybe we need to do different lineups. This is the second time Rick has brought this up. He did so at a practice, I want to say about a month ago, where he basically said, hey, I need to start seeing improvement or I'm going to consider all my options here. And one of those, you're right, absolutely could be putting Ben out there where you know he's in there to be a surefire three-point shooter 
and also defend? What if all of a sudden you have a lineup of like Nimhard, Shepard, Neesmith, uh, Turner, and you know, and figure it out from See, there? I was just going to ask Scott. I was just going to ask you yeah. who would be their be- if if the Pacers had a game. Herb Simon comes to Rick Carlisle, says Rick. I got a friendly wager going on with Chad Buchanan about whether or not we can limit a team to fewer in a game than 100 points. So put out your best defensive players, and there's a bonus for you from Santa Herb, right? (laughs) So if that were the case, then what players does Rick Carlisle put out there? It's interesting you mentioned this because this was kind of a discussion mentally I had in the offseason. Like, that you look at this roster and there's so many offensive talented players and a handful of defensive talented players, but they don't overlap. Right. So if, if, if Herb Simon wanted to see the defensive group and said, forget it, I just want to go back to the principles and have a defensive minded group, you'd have Nimhard, Bruce Brown, probably Ben Shepard, Neesmith at the four, which many people around the league have been pushing, hey, we need to see Neesmith at the four. Like, uh, moving forward. And then, of course, Turner at the five. I think that would be the five you'd go to from a defensive standpoint. Of course, I guess at that point, Scott, the, and I'm saying this be, to kind of cast a light on the defensive situation with Indiana, the situation there, if that were the case, is then you start to become really thin on your bench in terms of defensive pl- defensive-minded players, right? Yeah. What, what more, Realistically, what you could talk about is say the final five minutes in a game. If you need some defensive stops, you could trot out this lineup. I don't think it's realistic to you know move forward with a group like this. And on top of that, you're going to want Halliburton out there for 32, 35 minutes per game. Um, we saw last year where oftentimes they'd alternate offense defense with him and McConnell. Uh, and you could at some point include McConnell maybe even amongst this group just because of his, his peskiness, ability to get a, under opponent's skin, and just the energy level he boosts. If anything, maybe you'd move Hemden into the starting lineup with if we're talking about this hypothetical group and bring Shepard off the bench as one of those defensive guys. But it, doesn't that say a lot that we're going down this route? But that's truly – been the story of this Pacers right. season is sure. not being able to get stops and not having quality defensive lineups. Pacers beat writer for Fieldhouse Files, Scott Agnes, is our guest. Scott, when you look back at the early portions of this month, their wins over Boston and Milwaukee and their ability, like you mentioned, get stops not only in just five-minute bursts, but, but do it over the course of a game in a more efficient manner than they've done the rest of the season. Are those two games anomalies? Or are they examples of, no, when they lock in, they are capable of still playing a high-paced brand of basketball while also being effective on the defensive end? I, I think they, they have a chance to be mediocre, and that would be a huge step forward. That's all sure. I want to see right now. Like, right now, they are horrible. Um, give up the most points in the league. They're being outscored by four points per game. So we talk all about this offense, and yet in the aggregate in December games, they've been outscored by an average of four points per game. So you can score all you want. If you don't get de- have defense, there's your issue. And on top of that, I, I prefaced my- this whole conversation earlier uh, about their-, their travel schedules and all that. And that's important to point out. However, you know what does travel is your defense. You can rely, about, rely on that. Their offense, that's, that's one thing that can be an issue, you know, game to game. Maybe Buddy Heels doesn't hit shots, then he does. You just need this team to be, I don't know, could you be 22nd in the league, just not 30th in points given up and defensive rating. That's the progress. That's what we're looking for. We're not asking for them to be a top 10 defense. That's not realistic because what this all does go back to, guys, 
it's, it's a personnel issue. Uh, you, you could foresee this coming entering the season. I expected it to be a little better than now, but the, the only big upgrade defensively was Bruce Brown, and that was it. Scott, I, I and I apologize because I know I threw offense in there as well, but I meant just defensively, I felt like they were playing at the level you and other Pacers, writers, fans, whatever, are asking mm-hmm. for during the in-season tournament, especially against Boston and Milwaukee. Were those flashes in the pan, or is that what they're capable of? Like, Is that something you can point to and say, no, we, we are a team that's capable of being average or, or slightly above on a nightly basis. We just have to put it all together. Are they that close to that, I guess is what I'm saying. Like Those two games, they were able to close late, especially on a defensive end. Is that something that's repeatable, or was that just, well, lightning strikes every now and again for this team? Like, Are they capable of being that, you can't say high level, but that decent defensively like they were in the in-season tournament? As a whole, no, defensively. I don't see them doing that reliably because they just haven't. I think from a general standpoint – the in-season tournament was made for a team like the Pacers. They got up for those games. They treated those like the biggest games of their career because it was. And so, so I think we saw them rise to a different level. The money was a motivator. I, I just don't see, think we could see that um, from the, on a night-in and night-out basis, at least right now in the way in which we've, we've only seen those small glimpses, Jimmy. That's, that's the small sample size we have to go off of. So I, I don't foresee any more. Now, we could see some more want-to. You could see some guys hustle a little bit more. But a lot of it is a personnel and scheme concerns. Scott, offensively speaking, Tyrese Halliburton, is he forcing things too much? Is he getting – is for the first time are we starting to see Halliburton maybe overthinking things offensively? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think what more than anything is you're seeing teams guard him differently. Them seeing what the game plan is from other teams like the Lakers and teams before them saying, hey, if we cut him off, if we limit him to an average performance, 20 points, 11 rebounds, that's a 10-point that's a win for us is what other teams are looking at. So you're seeing more doubles, more traps. Uh, because of what he's doing um, and playing 35 minutes per game, he's being picked up. Full are those more. things that are unforeseen <clears throat> previously for him? In other words, is he seeing looks now that he's never seen before? Nobody's seen him much more often. Before, you would see certain teams do that. Uh, Jaden McDaniels with Minnesota was always great at that. When he played his former team, the Sacramento Kings, they knew exactly how to defend him. Now the book is out, I believe, on, on how to try to minimize the Pacers, and it starts with Tyrese. You, you know he's going to get his 10 assists, but as long as he doesn't get his 27, 30 points per game, like he was, aver- he was averaging 29 points in November. This month, 19 points per game. Yeah, I, it seems to me, and maybe it's just the nature of trying to increase things offensively when you know you're giving up points, but it seems like they're now, and, and I'm not trying to pick on the guy, I think he's a great player, I mean, I know that, but it feels like offensively Halliburton has had more like careless plays with the ball than we had previously seen. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You think back to even just last night, I think in the first quarter he had three turnovers to two assists and no points. Part of that, I think it was just lack of focus by him and his teammates, kind of a little bit lackadaisical and uh, being a little bit exhausted with it. I know that's an excuse, but um, they're trying to play fast, push push the tempo, but a little bit more careless. And, and the, the margin for error is much more slim when he's 
being defended and getting the attention that he is now receiving. Scott, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Scott Agnes of Fieldhouse Files is our guest. Aaron Neesmith at the four. One of the things I love about Neesmith is the fact that he does have versatility and you can put him a number of places. And I think he's not afraid of any defensive matchup. But does putting him at the four then create for you some challenges offensively of where you can totally utilize what he does bring? Or is he a guy that does not need to have plays facilitated through him offensively? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I I think that move would be, you know, you're going to get the hustle play, some loose rebounds. He's going to block out and handle his man. The, The key thing is he's kind of this Swiss army knife for this team. He is that versatile guy. Excuse me. So it gives you that more... Um, dynamic of a look defensively. He he doesn't care about who he's facing. He's put on some weight in the offseason to be able to guard some of the bigger guys. And I think he really relishes those opportunities. So I am not opposed to that because you can see, especially early on in the season, there would be a lot of miscommunication and breakdowns um, between the bigs from Obi Toppin not being in the right spot. There were several times I remember where Miles Turner would be shouting something out, then he would have to over-recover, and Miles would make the foul while trying to do so. Uh, Neesmith knows the system. He's been here for a couple of years. I, I, would, I would like to see more of Aaron because you know what you're getting from him each night. Fieldhouse File, Scott Agnes joins us. Scott, our producer Eddie Garrison brought this up to me during one of our breaks. We're looking at what's ahead for the Pacers. How important is this next five- or six-game stretch, Charlotte at Memphis, Orlando at Houston, at Chicago versus New York, to close the year when you look at what they have awaiting them to open 2024 right. back-to-backs, well, not back-to-backs literally, but two straight games against Milwaukee, Atlanta mixed in there, and then two straight against Boston. 16 of 23 games to open up the 2024 calendar against playoff teams. There you go. Yeah, it, it's a gauntlet. You cannot emphasize enough how important this next really five-game stretch is. Now, Memphis will probably have John Moran, who's expected to return from his suspension um, I think it's tomorrow night. Uh, so he will be back in the lineup, but that Memphis team has not been good this season. Orlando is going to be a big challenge just because they are exactly opposite. If you want to see what the Pacers need on the wing, look at Orlando because they built their team around that kind of new age player, much like Toronto has. But once you hit January one, that's when things really get difficult. And so that's why I was so hard on this team in, in the first month of the season, they had 11 of their first 16 at home and they only went 9-7. and seven. It felt like they left a lot on the table, and for as many good wins as they've had, boy, they had some bad ones. Scott Agnes is our guest, Fieldhouse Files, where you can read him. <coughs> Scott, sorry about that. I, you ever swallowed the wrong, the wrong way with water there, yes, Jimmy? Yes, all the time. I just did that right there, and I almost like everywhere. But, but you I'm, didn't. You stuck the landing. Well, you know, I mean. That's listen, important. As, as Santa Jake, right? I'm, I'm over here drinking coffee because I got a big night ahead of me. Now, and you can clean it up here. with the snap of your fingers, right? I mean, let's That's right. be real. That, that is true, yeah. Scott, your number one Christmas wish list for yourself is what? I'd say good health. I've, I've had that cough for the last couple of months like many people. I'd like to just feel like myself again. Okay. Well, well don't hang around Eddie. Yeah, stay out of the oh studio. <laughs> stay out of the studio. Now, the, the good news is Eddie Garrison was trying to clean out the air in here with his computer about the the fan on that bad boy was running. Did you hear that over the air? Uh, I don't know if you could no. or not. It was that thing was humming along. Uh, Scott, we appreciate it as always, man. I appreciate it, Jake. Thank you, man. Scott Agnes, Fieldhouse Files. We have been talking plenty about the Pacers and their game last night with the Los Angeles Clippers. The challenges coming off of that Rick Carlisle talked about the in-season tournament. 
And then we've also been talking about Santa Jake and doing what we can to deliver for the different sports teams throughout central Indiana. But at the same time, it is important to highlight the fact that the franchises and the different businesses of Indianapolis are a critical part of this community and bettering the lives for not only those of us that enjoy watching games, but also helping out those that might need a little bit of help during the holiday season. And joining us now on the program, assistant coach for the Pacers, Lloyd Pierce, who has taken that exactly to heart by saying, you know what, the weather is getting colder outside and there are people that might need our help, and so let's step up to do it. And he joins us to talk about it. Coach, first off, I appreciate the time today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Listen, I I love the cause, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Take us through how people today can help out at the Horizon House, which is, by the way, on Washington Street, 1033 East Washington Street. But take me through the initiative here of collecting coats for people of Indianapolis. Yeah, I mean, we obviously know um, our neighbors that that are unsheltered, that are out on the street. Uh, the Horizon House is, is geared specifically to addressing a lot of their needs, um, whether it's shelter, food, um, getting them their B&B services, getting registration. It's kind of a one-stop shop um, for our neighbors that are on the street. But obviously in the winter months, it gets cold out here. And, you know, when I went to visit with the Horizon House and figure out ways that my family and I could get involved, The main thing they said from a short-term need was being able to help those that are on the street, that are out there uh, with winter coats. Um, They had a drive a couple months ago where a couple churches stepped up and provided some blankets and some comforters. Uh, But their their main need right now was for winter coats. So I thought, why not get the Pacers involved? Let's get a coat drive going. Uh, And I think our organization has done a tremendous job of of advertising it. Um, I'm here on the radio show talking to you guys about it. So we're we're looking forward to – to doing our part. And my understanding is, and of course this all gets underway in kind of the cap of this, because I know that they've had obviously ways that people have been able to drop off at the field house, but you're going to be out at Horizon House, if I'm not mistaken, Coach, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but from 3.30 to 5.30 today, people are going to have a chance to bring, and I think most people have in the closet, that coat that you think, you know what, I didn't wear it last winter, somebody else can use it. Uh, if you drop it off now, first 50 people are going to get a chance to come see the Pacers play in action. But this is all going on for a couple of hours today, correct? Yeah, 3.30 to 5.30. I'm headed over there uh, pretty much right when I get off the phone with you guys to help set up. Uh, we encourage anyone to drop off. Everybody's got a coat they're not wearing. We, we all like to purge at some point. Let's purge today with some of those coats that we haven't worn in three or four years that are still in good condition. Uh, my guy Aaron Neesmith is coming out to help out as well, and uh, I think there'll be a few volunteers from the organization. So we're looking forward to it, and anything that we can give and provide will always be uh, beneficial to those that are in need. Pacers assistant coach Lloyd Pierce is our guest. Again, that coat drive taking place at Horizon House at 1033 East Washington Street from 3.30 to 5.30 today. And as Coach mentioned, Aaron Neesmith will join him from 4.30 to 5.30 for the event as well. Coach, in all your stops around the NBA, working with organizations like Horizon House, you've mentioned and called it an obligation. It's very important to you. Why is it so much deeper than basketball for you? Why, why do you feel called to to help and give back to the community when you can? Well, I think we're all in a privileged position as coaches, as players, um, as the organization. Um we feed off the energy and the support that our fans, our community provides for us. 
And it's our obligation and commitment to provide for them and specifically to provide for those that are in need. And so Horizon House is right around the corner for us from us. Everywhere I've been, it's been an obligation. Um, we know the privilege of our position. We know what we can do to amplify messaging. We know what we can do to help organizations that are doing the right work but need the right assistance. And that's where we all step in. And, and I felt that obligation. I, I feel completely committed to it, and I'm always looking for more to do. Coach, it's funny. I was looking at Lloyd Pierce, you know, your resume and – and, you know, I know you're a California guy. It's funny because being from San Jose, you know, people think yeah. like, oh, you know, Northern California, it's, it's, he's never had, co- you know, it gets a little chilly there. I mean, I, I it know gets, it gets a little chilly. It does. Day. It gets a lot of chilly in San Francisco at I, night. Trust me. I, I have, <laughs> I think I have like three or four fleeces that I had bought in San Francisco because I got there thinking I didn't need anything. And then you go in right. there and you're like, whoa, it just dropped to 55 degrees here, right? But yeah, if you're in the East Bay, if you're in Oakland and then you cross over the Bay Bridge, you might experience a 15 degree drop. <laughs> totally, right? But I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, so you played at Santa Clara, you grew up in California. You know, I know in the NBA, you were in Golden State and Memphis, you know, that's a little bit okay. And then I thought, wait a minute, you began, if I'm not mistaken, as a player. Didn't you play in Montana at one time? I was in, yeah, I went out to Montana, uh, wanted a small level. I don't even know if it was CBA. It was low-level pro. And then I went to Germany, China, Australia, and I said, this is not for me. I'm getting into coaching. (laughs) I I did about four years of that. And so I, you know, as a result, it's advanced my coaching career because I started early. I'm 17 years in the NBA and five years in co- at college so I, I have 22 years of coaching on, on my resume um, because the playing overseas the travel the adjustments that just wasn't for me I would think that one year in Montana would cause somebody <laughs> to have enough winter coats right there that you've got a couple of them to spare now right it was more, it was more like one week I wasn't out there very long <laughs> I was getting that. It's 20 <laughs> below and you're like all right I'm good I'm out of here yeah. right yeah uh, again, 3.30 until 5.30 today, Horizon House at 10.33 East Washington. This is the most important thing, folks, if you're if you're coming out. And again, the first 50 are going to get Pacer tickets, but your chance to meet Coach, to meet Aaron Neesmith, any size, any – I mean, if it is something that helps keep people warm, then that's what is needed at Horizon House, which is a fabulous facility. I've been there as well. Folks can go in and they – what I really like about it is people are allowed to, to go in and, and kind of shop, if you will, like it's a store and right. pick out a coat that's good right. for them, you know, which anybody should be able to do. Um, and coach, coach you, you've mentioned that it's not just limited to today, right? I know you're making a big push for the 19th, but, but as a whole, Horizon House message for the holiday is, is bigger than that, correct? A- absolutely. I mean, there, there are, there's always going to be needs. There's always going to be pressing needs. Um, this is something that we wanted to jump on as the holiday season approached, as the winter months and the weather started to change. Um, so we, we wanted to attack the day while we were in town and we had an opportunity to be there hands-on. Uh, but they're always looking for volunteers. They're always looking for donations. They're always looking for assistance. So anyone that's available that's looking to, to get involved, to get involved with helping their neighbors and the community, Horizon House is a great place to start. Coach, I want to ask you one um basketball question real quick because we were talking about it earlier and I wanted your your input on this I know that coach Carlisle was on with you know Kevin and Andy this morning but to me it's a really interesting period in watching the Pacers because I thought the real value of the in-season tournament 
was not just, you know, the interest level that sparked from it for the community and everything else, but in addition to that, having a young team realize the way that Los Angeles, for example, kind of turned up that wick defensively right. when that money was on the line. And I would much rather a young team learn that in December than in like April or May. And I think they're kind of still feeling that effect because they got on the radar a little bit. Is that an accurate statement? And and how long is that learning process that you have to work through? Well, the learn, learning process is ongoing. I don't care what stage of your career you're in. The day you stop learning is the day you start on the decline. Um, there, there's always ways to grow and improve in this game. Um, we're seeing a guy who we played in the in-season final in year 21 step his game up in a lot of different ways. And it was pretty new for a lot of our guys. But I think the in-season tournament, we're 25 games in. We've played some meaningful basketball and you, you appreciate the lessons and the value of those meaningful games. You know, we had seven in-season tournament games. We played Miami back-to-back twice. We played uh, Philadelphia back-to-back. Two teams that we split on the road against to put us in that position. Uh, we had a grueling travel schedule as a result of the in-season tournament and then going on a four-game road trip. That's, that's only going to prepare us. It's only going to help us. We, we've hit a little lull in the last few games. Um, but that's also part of the process and the growth. Um, how do you respond coming off of emotional games? Uh, we have to step our game up. We have to step our game up on the defensive end. But we also have to have the mental fortitude and strength to know that everybody's gunning for us now. And that's, that's a result of having success in the in-season tournament this early in the season. This sounds like a cliche, Coach, because I think people say it about every team. Uh, fans say this about no matter what team you're a fan of people say well the thing I like about him is the following so I know it sounds cliched but is this as good a chemistry group as you've had in your professional career and by that I mean guys that seemingly just all interchangeably get along with one another which I think can be rare yeah absolutely um you know, I, I always say that there are three levels of guys. You have high-maintenance guys, you have low-maintenance guys, and you have no-maintenance guys. And our roster from top to bottom is uh, pretty much no-maintenance and low-maintenance. We don't, we don't have any high-maintenance guys. You're not reading about our guys in the papers and off-season stuff and off-the-court off problems. Our guys come to work. They enjoy playing with each other. Uh, we have tremendous energy on and off the bench. Uh, the guys hang out with each other off the court. Uh, it is a very high character team, um, and I enjoy. I enjoy and in my 17 years, this is by far the most enjoyable team that we've had. We're fun offensively, we're learning defensively, and we're eager to get to that next step and that next level. But that comes from character of our guys, and I, and I truly believe we have some of the best guys on our roster. 1033 East Washington Street is where you can find Horizon House. Uh, that obviously is just a little bit east of downtown. Horizon House until 5.30 today, starting at 3.30 until 5.30. Lloyd Pierce will be there. Aaron Neesmith will be there. Your chance to pick up some Pacer tickets for tomorrow night's game. But more importantly, folks, if you're listening to this, a chance for you to help out the people in central Indiana that most need it during the cold periods. And I'm telling you, I've been around Horizon House. I've dealt and talked with and worked with a lot of the folks that are going to benefit from this. And um, oftentimes it's just a tough circumstance that put people in that position and they just need to know that it's a city that's behind them that's willing to help 
and lift them up and carry them through in a tough time, and that's part of what this is all about. Coach, I appreciate the the time, and I appreciate certainly your understanding and your compassion towards the people of Indianapolis that are going to benefit from this initiative. Thank you guys for having me on and, and really plugging this, uh, this co-drive. We really appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. Lloyd Pierce, the assistant coach for the Indiana Pacers. Again, uh, 3.30 until 5.30.